Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today's episode is a recording from a webinar we held on June 27th, 2023. Today's webinar is moderated by Rachel Washburn and features Lieutenant General David Deptula, Major General Mastin Robison, and our Head of Macro Strategy, Peter Chur. Good afternoon. Thank you so much to everyone who is joining Academy Securities Crisis in Russia webinar. Lots of interest over the weekend about what exactly is happening. So really grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us today while we can kind of contextualize a really unique and um, unexpected series of events. I'm excited to be joined by General David Deptula and General Mastin Robison, two of our geopolitical intelligence group members who will have some really interesting insights onto this weekend's events. And we'll be able to provide some thoughts on what this means for the future of the war in Ukraine, for Russia's influence globally, and maybe some uh, interesting conversation around the strategic relationships that Russia does have um, and how they're going to be impacted by this weekend's events. Also excited to have Peter Chur with us today, our head of macro strategy, who will help contextualize all of the geopolitical aspects of this conversation to hopefully arm you all with some insights that you can uh, navigate the markets better. So to kick off the conversation, General Deptula, can you give us a quick thousand foot view about the series of events that transpired this weekend? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. I, uh, just to you know, get everyone on the same sheet of music, although um, you know, if you haven't been watching TV and understood what's going on, I think you're in the minority. But bottom line up front is uh, Prigozhin mustered about 8,000 men and entered Russian territory on what he called a march for justice toward Moscow. His aim apparently was to take over the Russian defense ministry, just like he was able to occupy the local Ministry of Defense headquarters in Rostov-on-Don. And he posted an 11-minute audio statement uh, yesterday claiming that he launched the rebellion after Russian forces killed 30 of his fighters. Um, I I think many of you are familiar with the fact that he has not been pleased um, with the relationship from the official Russian military uh, and the lack of support that they've provided to his Wagner troops. Um, And he also demanded the immediate, as a result, resignations of the current defense minister and the chief of the uh, general staff of Russia's armed forces. As we all know, his force didn't make it there. Um, A convoy of a few thousand Wagnerites under the command of uh, Mr. Yutkin the co-founder of the Wagner Group, stopped about 120 miles from Moscow. Now, Prigozhin himself stayed in Rostov-on-Don at the defense headquarters and first tried to call Putin, who refused to talk to him, and then he tried to talk to lower-ranking officials. Finding himself without the support he may have assumed, uh, his family threatened, And according to his own words, not wanting to spill Russian blood, he sought an intermediary in the president of Belarus, Lukashenko. To complicate matters in this novelesque uh, description, uh, Lukashenko is a Putin ally. 
Now, for reasons still yet to be understood, a deal was struck. Prozosian and the 8,000 men that he brought with him would be going into exile in Belarus. And in return, uh, Putin's treason, treason charges against him would be dropped. The remaining Wagner troops, somewhere around 12,000, were offered contracts with the Russian army or they could go home. Now, Putin, on his part, after hearing uh, Prigozhin's Monday remarks, said that he had worked to avoid bloodshed, to give those who made a mistake a chance to think again uh, and make them understand just what a tragic, destructive consequences for Russia were in the adventure in which they were dragged into. So let me stop there as that pretty much sums up what we know is relatively accurate. Uh, and I'd like to emphasize that there are still so many uncertainties. We need to be careful not to confuse speculation with the truth. So um, with that, um, back to you, team. Yeah, and I, I think that is an important place to emphasize because I think we have not seen the end of this event. Obviously, there are some kind of unexpected responses based off what we know about these leaders involved. Um, so before we get to the macro impact of this weekend's events, let's let's keep it micro and talk about the potential expected impact of how the last 96 hours have transpired. So General Robinson, over to you. Um, were you surprised by Putin's response, the giving an out to uh, Prigozhin as far as allowing them to have, um, dropping the treason charges, allowing them to go to Belarus, and then if the plan continues as General Jatula describes, where a huge contingency of the Wagner group is going to be absorbed into the Russian military, how successful is that going to be when there was just such a, a mutiny and a conflict? Yeah, I was certainly surprised, like I think everybody was, that Putin's typical reaction is, is probably more ruthless than that, uh, based on what he described, because he certainly described it as a revolt. Um, and so if, if it was a revolt, I would not have expected, as it's been articulated, as more of a political compromise instead of a military compromise. Um, but I also am, am, I guess I'm assuming that Putin watches news like we do, and he had to have seen um, that, that it, there was some popular support. Um, in and around what Progrosin was doing, um, which was probably more emotionally based on this friction not being between Progrosin and Putin, but between Progrosin and the Minister of Defense, as, as John Deptula was saying, and therefore lower than a national revolt. Uh, but Putin certainly didn't see it that way. So I would have, I certainly was, would have expected uh, a broader swift axe early. Now, honestly, it probably was a smart thing to do because he still has the time to do an investigation that, and come out a week, two, a month later, proclaiming that this was a full-out revolt, it was treason, and all these people are going to be executed. I mean, he can still do that. Um, but but I, I certainly think it was a middle ground that gave him a, plausibly a better connection to the people early on that he can pivot off of if he needs to. 
Chair Liptulo, what do you think these events mean for Putin's grip on power in Russia and how he's viewed globally? Yeah, well, um, the, the, the bottom line is Putin now has a major challenge in, in dealing with the dissidents uh, in his regime who oppose him. Um, it, clearly, this was a challenge to his authority, regardless of what uh, uh, Prigozhin said uh, with respect to his beef not being with Putin, but with the Ministry of Defense. Um, you, you know, when when you conduct an assault on Moscow, uh, you know that 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 that's that's pretty blatant. Now, while none of the Putin dissidents have revealed themselves, um, it does appear likely that the FSB and Putin know just who uh, uh, Prigozhin was talking to, um, <clears throat> and. Uh, he'll have to judge whether these individuals and organizations are reliable or if they need to be dealt with by Russian security. Um, you know, the other piece here that we've seen leading up to this event is that Putin also has a challenge to crack down on the widespread sabotage that's been occurring in Russian cities. Not all of this can be blamed on the Ukrainians because many of the perpetrators are Russians. Uh, and from the looks of it, they're professional. Um, <clears throat> so beyond sabotage, there have been a number of assassinations of prominent pro-Putin leaders lately. And uh, Putin must realize by now that he's also on that list and that the support for these attacks is mostly from internal sources. So the night of the long knives may happen soon if Putin is going to survive as Russia's leader. Um, it isn't clear what's going to happen to Prigozhin uh, and to his uh, collaborator, Utkin. And while the Wagner, Wagner force remains a potent and useful tool for Russia, its current leaders um, are a major um, liability. So, but bottom line, back to facts, what didn't happen in Russia was a general uprising um, and an open-ended fracturing of the security apparatus. Um, <clears throat> but what didn't happen might yet happen unless Putin acts decisively. And no one can say if he can um, or if he will. So <laughs> what I'd tell you what's certain is that there's a period of great uncertainty that's going to follow. And if I may pull that thread a little bit more, and Putin's power base is not based off institutions the way that a democratic um, government would allow power for a leader, right? So it's based off of his influence with oligarchs and um, his authoritarian efforts. So do you have any sense about how that power base that Putin's able to establish over um, you know, decades of leadership, how that is reacting to this weekend's events? Um, I'd like to say yes, but in all candor, no, because, you know, we don't have um, insights uh, into just what that crowd that has propped up Putin uh, uh, is thinking. Uh, but this is one of the challenges with dealing with an autocrat uh, slash dictator like Putin. Um, 
part of the reason he's acted the way he has is he's surrounded himself with people for 20 years who've been telling him what it is they think he wants to hear. And so he's not getting accurate information. Um, I, I think in part, uh, that may have been one of the reasons Prigozhin did what he did. And that's, look, um, I'm tired of this incompetence that's coming out of the Russian Ministry of Defense. Uh, and I'm going to take action. And he took such a, a huge step that it certainly got Putin's attention. I mean, and in, in, in the multi-million dollar question is why didn't Putin deal more seriously with him? And so there's some speculation that, well, uh, because he realizes that to some degree, um, <clears throat> with respect to the incompetence of the Russian military leadership, um, that Prigozhin is right. Um, that um, these folks have become a bunch of uh, sycophantic cronies um, that don't make the decision decisions on the basis of merit, but on the basis of um, uh, bribes and special treatment. Uh, and you know that that is, uh, uh, I think that's part of the reason we're seeing such poor performance out of the Russian military writ large. So. I'm sorry to digress there a bit, but um, your initial question um, with respect to what the oligarchs are thinking about what happened, no, I, I don't have any clear insights. Well, you said something there that struck a chord with me. I think if, of course, hindsight being 2020, um, if there is one lesson learned that we can take away from the last 18 months um, as it relates to the events in Ukraine and, and with Russia, um, there has been a lot of warning that these things are going to happen. Putin essentially said that he will be invading Ukraine at some point, yet we were left in disbelief last February. And certainly uh, Prigozhin has not been subtle about his um, discontent with the events unfolding in Ukraine and with um, Russian military leadership. And so maybe it's time to start taking people at their word when it comes to uh, these sort of things. Um, Peter, I would love your thoughts on the uncertainty and how you're viewing it and navigating it. I think when, we, when we've been thinking about this from a macro standpoint, we've kind of unfortunately settled into this status quo, right? This war is gonna be an ongoing thing. And all of a sudden these events made us rethink that, right? What could happen? And I would say right now, I'm slightly worried that we could see some form of escalation. You know, Putin could behave like a cornered animal. There's, you know, I think almost everyone is universally surprised how calmly he took this rebellion. So I think we should be prepared for the risk that he lashes out, whether it's a light, night of the long knives or something, or he retaliates harshly against Ukraine to take the pressure off him. I think that's one risk. And I do think there's still a lot of questions to be asked is, you know, we've talked to General Robson, who unfortunately got booted out for a minute, but we were talking, there are six or seven such paramilitary organizations under Russia. One question is, did Wagner become too closely associated with Putin? Is this a fraud to pretend or create a potential separation? You know, a week or so ago, there were stories that Russia was moving nukes to Belarus. All of a sudden, you've got in there. He took over briefly, I believe, a military command center before kind of this. So I, I think, you know, this false flag potential issue, maybe he's trying to open a second front. Um, where he can truly be a roguelike state because he's now, quote unquote, clearly anti-Putin, comes a risk. And remember, when they attacked Ukraine initially, the attack from on Kiev came from Belarus. So I, I think we've got to be prepared for some sort of escalation. I think it's not a high probability, but 
certainly I think you should be very careful if you're thinking about markets, looking for a flight to safety type thing. And then before turning it back, I think the other thing that's really made me think about more and more is, so what happens if we got peace sooner? Let's say there is an overthrow and somehow Putin loses power. I think from collectively when we talk to the geopolitical intelligence group, the person who replaces Putin is unlikely to be any better in terms of a human being necessarily, but it's probably easier for them to extricate themselves out of Ukraine. I think the problem is it probably doesn't do much for the world. Had Putin resigned or been their peace last February, sorry, May, April, May, June, I think we could have seen things go back to normal. But I think the global supply chains have shifted dramatically. We've seen, you know, oil is going to be sold by Russia into China and India now, no matter what happens. So we've seen that. Rebuilding Ukraine is going to be a huge expense. And it's becoming a little bit uncertain to a lot of people. How does Ukraine even rebuild when you've had you know, five to 10 million displaced people who are starting to have their children go to schools in other countries? Who, what do they want to come home to Ace, where there's this massive infrastructure? So I think aside from all of this, it's going to make us all think, what does the world look like if and when we get this peace? And unfortunately, I don't think it looks that much different than where we are today with this war is going on. Yeah, Peter, that's uh, that, that's interesting that you um, bring up those points, which are all valid. Um, one of the ones that I'd like to jump on and and talk about a minute uh, is something that I really haven't heard anybody talk about. Of course, everyone's interested in the intrigue of what's happened uh, uh, between Putin and uh, the Wagner Group and and all the machinations up about potential, uh, you know, acquiring of uh, nuclear storage facilities and so on and so forth. But what I haven't heard anybody talk about is the fact that the United States Congress just put caps on our defense spending. And if you include inflation, that actually results in a decline in defense spending over the next two years. This is not unlike the Budget Control Act just under uh, a different uh, uh, camouflage uh, that occurred and resulted in sequestration in 2011. Um, I would tell you that this is not the time to be taking risk with our own military because what's going on in Russia uh, definitely confirms that the United States military needs a strategy and a corresponding force structure to be able to fight and win in two major wars, not just one, but one in the Pacific and one in Europe. Uh, and our military does not have the capacity to do that today. And frankly, that's part of why Putin proceeded with his invasion of Ukraine in the first place. Uh, the US has lost its conventional deterrent capability because in some areas it's been cut more than in half in terms of capacity from uh, what it was just during Desert Storm. So I think it's only when we can achieve this uh, two major war level of capacity is the United States gonna be able to regain its position in the world to be able to deter the kind of aggression that Putin, Putin took on in invading Ukraine in the first place. Um, so I think that's a piece that, uh, uh, that deserves some pondering and discussion uh, but given the proclivity of our Congress, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath. And that feels like essentially a uh, encouragement to 
look at this situation strategically too. So I'm actually going to pivot the conversation there too. On that note, what let's let's start with the, the Wagner Group. So they were a highly effective, highly prolific aspect of the Russian agenda abroad. So with these events, and of course, you know, even with them being so heavily utilized in Ukraine, it had an impact. But what does this mean for the Russian agenda globally now that the Wagner group doesn't get to be an extension of Putin's agenda? It depends. You know, since Putin uh, rolled over so easy in terms of, or apparently, with respect to his response to any kind of penalties to Prigozhin, maybe part of the reason was because um, he applauds or doesn't want to stop capitalizing on what he's doing with his uh, Wagner group in places like Africa. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of being pragmatic, uh, maybe uh, you won't see the complete excommunication of the Wagner group um, out of um, uh, Putin's uh, orbit, if you will. On the other hand, uh, because of the significance of this response and the real negative perspective uh, from Prigozhin, his remarks with respect to the leadership of the Russian military, uh, he's certainly not going to be able to work with them. Um, so, uh, again, uh, lots of speculation, uh, but few facts just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe to your point, there was more of uh, an incentive to remain engaged in Africa to business aspects as opposed to the ideological aspects of those conflicts. Um, well, Peter, curious, keeping at the strategic level, have you seen or heard anything that leads you to believe that that indicates what um, Xi's response is going to be to this? No, I think that's really one of the big questions is you're clearly, he's got to be a little bit disappointed that he's supported Putin, that this clearly looks almost every level, some form of a setback for Putin. Having said that, does this also start giving him the excuse to help Putin by selling weapons? I think that's always been one of the fears of the escalation would be that you hit a point where China, which, you know, has clearly been buying Russian material, has relatively stayed outside of the war, right? They've probably been funding the war through their purchases, but they've remained one step back from being directly involved. And, you know, you could see a scenario where those of us who've been concerned that China is selling weapons, that this escalates into Putin saying, hey, we're going to have to look to rebuild our military. Some of these you know, things that were said are true. And just like I think we probably benefit from seeing our weapons in action and how they're performing in the field, China may like to see that, especially given that Russia thought they had decent weapons that completely failed in the field. So I, I think that's where this could play out. And it ties into a lot, too, where Xi has really been much more outgoing globally. I think when we started really talking about China four or five years ago, we really always thought does China really only be considering domestic affairs? And by domestic, yes, that meant their international relations, but they've been involved so much more. Again, dust, and we've talked about this before, when they put together the Saudi deal with Tehran, uh, right? They're stepping into areas that we hadn't seen them done before. We're seeing them do this in commerce. We're seeing them take advantage of 
you know, our unwillingness maybe to deal with certain countries that we view unsavory, they're stepping up and they're building these relationships. And, you know, two years ago, I don't think a single person asked legitimately about the dollar as a reserve currency. And if it did, maybe it was the euro. It was certainly not really the yuan. And now that is a topic that comes up more and more frequently as China steps up, takes advantage of this chaos, I think takes advantage of our probably unwillingness and maybe even inability to project power globally the way we once did. They're stepping that up. And I think that's it. Ultimately, sadly, I think no matter what happens with Russia and Ukraine, except for some form of escalation, isn't going to be as important to us and to the economy as what China does in response to this. And I just don't see anything that's going to force, you know, make China set for peace. And if anything, I think China is going to take advantage of this chaos and continue to rebuild relationships across the globe ahead of us. Well, I, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, well said, Peter, um, and I applaud your ability to say what you did without getting into politics. Um, uh, but you did make the case that, you, you know, that uh, she's been acting and not seeing uh, any significant response on behalf of, the, behalf of the United States. And he's been acting more and more aggressively, um, which kind of goes back and underlines what I said earlier about the decline in U.S. military capability. Um, uh, uh, folks, this isn't, uh, you know, hyper hyperbole. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, I'll just give you an example. Um, while all the services lack the capacity today to meet the demands of our current national defense strategy, um, I'd tell you, because I've experienced the Air Force is in the worst shape of all of them. Uh, it is a fact that it is currently the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready in its entire history. Um, that, that's not just the last 10 years, in its entire history. And due to current budget limitations, it's planned to get a thousand aircraft smaller in the next five years. Okay, now that's not a recipe for building a strong, capable force that can either deter aggression or fight and win if deterrence fails. Uh, so th these things have consequences. Our adversaries are watching this. This is why one of the biggest concerns that's floating around in the Department of Defense these days is, hey, if there's ever a window for the Chinese to take advantage of the poor shape of the U.S. military, um, it's within the next five years. And not to give the United States the opportunity to recognize this and climb out of this, uh, um, uh, this bathtub that it's in. Uh, so that's an area we need to be concerned with. That's where diplomacy comes into play, um, as well as putting our money where our mouth is. And right now, the United States government has not been doing that. And we're spiraling, at least the Air Force is, in a four-structure death spiral. Do you have a sense, I mean, the events in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine was a great example where conventional or traditional military might was not particularly successful. Your your points, you know, relevant as they are, do you see us preparing for a fight um, with a strategic competitor that looks different than the fights that we used to have to prepare for? Well, the, the short answer is yes, but it's taking way too long um, because the fights of the future with a peer competitor are going to be very much different than the fights over the last 20 years. 
I mean, you saw it reflected in decisions that got us to the point where we are. Secretary of Defense Gates terminated the F-22 program, which is the world's most capable stealth fighter ever built. He terminated that program um, uh, when it was at, uh, it it wasn't just a strategically erroneous uh, decision, it was economically stupid as well, because after spending $20 billion in research and development, this plane had been being pushed off the production line at its lowest unit cost with zero defects, and he decides to terminate it because he didn't view China as a threat. And he said, well, it's not useful in a counterinsurgency fight. Well, um, well decisions like that uh, are what got us to where we are today. We're recognizing those mistakes today. And across all the services, they're recognizing the need to build capabilities to stand up to a pure competitor. But at some point, capacity matters. So all the services today, because they're not getting the budgets that they need to both maintain current force structure and grow a future force structure, they're following this recipe of divest to invest. So they're getting rid of their current force structure to free up money to invest in future advanced capabilities. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out um, how many used cars you have to sell to be able to cash in and buy one new car. Uh, It's a bankrupt strategy and it's gotta change. Uh, But this administration doesn't wanna spend any more money on defense. And so that's why you don't see any call out of the leadership in the Department of Defense Um, that we are on a declining slope and we need greater resources if, in fact, we're going to do what the preamble of the Constitution says we form this government to do, and that's to provide for the common defense, comma, promote the general welfare. This Congress and the American people are acting like those comments were reversed. Uh, And, you know, we're going to suffer if we don't reverse this decline. And I would just try add to this a little bit. I think almost taking a step back, but from this, you know, we're thinking about how, what are we preparing for? You know, I've learned since I've been at Academy of the dime framework, right? The four levers of power, diplomacy, information, military, and economic. And, you know, neither Russia nor China were particularly strong at di- diplomacy, though it seems like China's getting better at that. At information, they're both very, very good. Military, they seem to be good at. Again, Russia kind of proved that. I think the one thing that we haven't done enough of is thinking about the economic lever of power and what China has done, how they've used the Belt and Road Initiative very successfully to go and lend with no intention necessarily of getting paid back. The whole goal is opening up ports, opening up access. So I think when we talk about what we're preparing for for the future in terms of these you know, power struggles, you know, economics is one that somehow I didn't, I, it's part of this dime framework. And maybe because the Soviet Union had no economic power whatsoever, we weren't prepared to deal with that. And I think we got sucked in or lulled into, you know, the belief that China wanted to be exactly like us. And if we give them enough time, they want to be like us. And they didn't. They wanted to be separate. And I think they use this economic lever of power far more effectively than anyone else has ever used it against us. And I think it used to be a tool that we used very well and we wielded and it created these relationships across the globe where we could plant our flag and create business environments that were conducive, you know, to companies coming in to changing political behavior or, you know, moral behavior within countries. 
And that's all been changing. It's changed over the last five to 10 years. So I think when we're talking more and more about you know, what this competition is going to look like, I keep kind of bringing it back to that time because I think the military, while super important, clearly is only a part of that. Certainly. I don't think we ever should underemphasize the um, impact of soft power. We're going to take the conversation back a little bit um, just because there's obviously a lot of curiosity from the audience about the actual events that did transpire. Um, so General Deptula, curious your thoughts on why Prigozhin did stop when he did, especially when he didn't seem like he was receiving much resistance from the Russian military? One of the things, there's a lot of speculation surrounding the answer to that question. Uh, I mean, the one from Prigozhin himself uh, was, look, he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to proceed further to, uh, because his real intent wasn't with the Russian people, he didn't want to spill any blood. Uh, you know, who knows? There are others who have, uh, uh, you know, postulated that, well, you know, maybe he captured a nuclear storage facility. I don't put a lot of credence in this. Matter of fact, I don't put any credence in this, but I just share it because there are people out there, you know, ginning up these kinds of answers. And that's what would explain his decision to suddenly stop his coup uh, attempt that Moscow maybe never have been his final destination. Uh, on a on a less spectacular uh, 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 example, uh, it's also possible that um, the so-called uh, Wagner Revolt was a ruse to open up a northern front from Belarus into Ukraine. This was mentioned earlier. Uh, I think the biggest part to make sure the audience understands here is deception is a fundamental element of Russian operations. So given where we are uh, today, um, I, I think folks need to be prepared for uh, a, a curveball uh, to come out of either Belarus um, or from the Russians, uh, but we're just going to have to wait and see. Well, that was perfect. You answered two questions uh, in one. We had an audience member asking about the um, potential for this to be simply a diversion. Um, another really interesting question. Um, do you have a sense of the contrast between how the Wagner group handled command and control versus the Russian military? I, I'm not going to speculate. Uh, the, the short answer is no. I don't have the kind of detailed tactical level insight of their command and control operations that would, uh, um, that would uh, adequately answer that question. So um, I, I just don't know. Uh, I was yes. looking at the question from uh, uh, from Tom, and uh, he, he goes into a little bit more detail in terms of, in other words, was Wagner utilizing a more Western-style decentralized command and control, small unit leaders allowed to take the initiative and adapt, and is it possible some of the resentment from the Russian military that Wagner was allowed to play by different rules? It's an excellent uh, question, Thomas. I don't believe, again, my opinion only, um, I don't believe that uh, the Wagner group was more decentralized in terms of their command and control, um, and in fact may have been more directive, but the direction that they're receiving may have been more competent than what the regular Russian units were receiving from their leadership, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I was going to go there earlier, but I think we see a question on the subject about the Middle East. And you know, I almost hate to even do this, but where do we stand now vis-a-vis -vis Iran, right? We've talked about China. We've talked about Russia. We've talked about our inability potentially to conduct military operations in two locations. Here's a country that is clearly progressing towards nuclear weapons, certainly has every intention of doing it. And, you know, are we at risk where we take our eye off the ball there that we aren't watching this enough and, you know, we're kind of so focused on these two, what's happening in the Middle East? What's happening in parts of Africa? What are we missing that we should be doing or could be doing from a global standpoint in terms of East um, stability? I think ultimately access to resources, all these things. It feels like we've kind of taken our eye completely off the Middle East and Africa with what's going on. Iran seems to be a threat and the opportunities that are there seem to be being bypassed right now. Hey, hey Peter, if I can jump in here, um, I will. I, because you raise an extraordinarily important point that I'm always cautious about not being misinterpreted when I make comments about, hey, our militaries not funded adequately to execute the needs of the national defense strategy. And that is, it, you raise my point to the degree that the United States national security strategy, and by the way, this drives me nuts when people say, oh, we spend more money on defense than the next 10 nations combined. Guess what? Our national security strategy is greater than all the other nations in the world combined. So yeah, we're gonna spend more money because here are the two enduring tenants, regardless of administration, that go to the heart of our national security strategy. And that is that the United States will engage in all the continents around the world, except Antarctica, um, where you know military operations are prohibited, in order to secure and promote peace and stability. Well, in order to do that, you have to have sufficient numbers of rotational forces that you don't break your Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Space Force uh, uh, operations. And then I go back to, and if you want to deter both conventional as well as nuclear conflict, you have to have the ability to induce uncertainty in your potential adversary's mind that they're gonna lose if they take any aggressive action. And so the Middle East is part of that area of operations, and that's why our combatant commands, again, I know everyone in the audience is not necessarily familiar with the way the Department of Defense is organized, but Central Command is a combatant command that's responsible for overseeing Middle East operations. And they have a partner uh, in the State Department responsibility for diplomacy in that realm too. But this gets back to the issue of deterrence. And unless you have sufficient numbers of forces and Iran understands the consequences of any adventurism that they might undertake, um, they'll be subject to pursue that adventurism. And so that's why we need sufficient numbers of resources to make sure that we're strong enough and adequate in all of the combatant commands to deter conflict from potential adversaries, uh, like not just China and Russia, uh, but North Korea, uh, Iran, uh, and extremist organizations as well. So sorry for that long answer, but I, it's an extraordinarily important point. I have another question from the audience that I, we can address the question 
with, I think, a really important um, point that we discuss um, from time to time. The question is about, um, should we be confident that China has the capacity uh, to command an army, given its lack of experience in modern warfare? Um, you know, we can address that question, but I think that we should definitely highlight how they have um, essentially been practicing over the years, some of the things that we do to encourage their uh, ability to practice warfare, so to speak. So General Dubtul would love your thoughts on that. It's an excellent question. Um, and the Chinese have not been involved in any kind of a uh, modicum of conflict uh, since back in the 1970s where they had a dust up with the uh, Vietnamese. Uh, and listen, nothing can replace real world experience uh, other than real world experience. But they are committed uh, to training and practicing. And they've been learning from the United States. In the United States military, we tend not to learn our lessons because we're moving from one operation to the next, to the next, to the next. And the Chinese studied our playbook. That's why they built this whole notion of anti-access aerial denial strategy, because in watching what happened in the first Persian Gulf War, they understand the consequences of if the United States is allowed to preposition forces and to operate from a variety of local bases that can reach them, just what can happen. So they came up and they developed these counter strategies, building missiles that can pummel all the fixed base outposts, building missiles that can take out our aircraft carriers. Um, and so they've been watching, they've been training, and they've been practicing. But back to the essence of the deterrent question, um, can they really do it? And if there's any one outcome that might have a modicum of benefit from this Russia-Ukraine conflict is that it is uh, by virtue of the troubles that the Russians are having with the Ukrainians, that's induce, inducing uncertainty in Xi's mind as to whether or not his military generals are telling him accurately what they might be able to do or not. You know, and, and Russia ran into problems attacking a landlocked enemy that's right next door, uh, not separated by 100 miles of water. That's an, an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult challenge is to conduct an amphibious assault. Uh, there's probably nothing else more difficult. So that is probably giving him pause. Uh, and we need to be coming up with um, uh, a, a solution uh, to rebuild our capacity to further deter any adventurism that she might contemplate. Appreciate that. Um those insights. I uh, We spent a lot of time talking about Xi's reaction to um, the events this weekend, but definitely want to, um, Peter, get your thoughts on um, a question from the audience around other strategic relationships that Putin has. So um, any thoughts on Saudi Arabia and the broader Middle East reaction to these events? Yeah, and I think I'll take it slightly more broadly, but we've been talking about the last year, year and a half, that the resource-rich, autocratic-rich nations have been developing closer, closer ties to China. China, I think, is out there saying, we want your resources. We don't care what you do to your people, how you treat your people. We just want those resources, and we will pay you for those resources. We have no real intention of getting off of oil or coal or anything like that. 
So they've been developing you know, this network of autocratic resource-rich nations, which fits, you know, Saudi Arabia certainly fits the example of that. And I think they're going to continue to push on this and say, well, Putin might be weak, but at least we're involved in things. China's involved, the US isn't doing much. And you're gonna see more and more these ties develop. You're gonna see more and more activity occur directly in the WAN. We're starting to see China, and again, we've been talking about this a little bit, this made in China strategy switching to a made by China strategy, where they start trying to develop you know, and sell BYD, which is their EV maker. They're setting up a factory in Brazil to sell into South America. You know, they've had the first commercial flight on the Chinese air, aircraft, um, which I'm not sure I want to get on a Chinese-made aircraft anytime soon, but that's not how they work, right? First, they'll make a domestic travel, and then they'll find some weaker, cheaper countries that are willing to deal with that. So I think this is all a push. We're starting to hear a little bit about contracts being denominated in yuan rather than in dollars in some of these smaller emerging markets countries. So you know, the steps that they're trying to take is, I think, always, particularly for emerging market countries, right? They needed dollars. They always had to be good with the U.S. because you needed dollars if you wanted goods and services. They're now starting to be able to get goods and services in yuan. And it's starting with a lot of these countries having trade surpluses with China. So they're selling these natural resources. China is going to start selling them more and more of their own goods and services to mitigate that trade balance. But that's going to, the dollar's always been another lever of power that we've been able to use. And I think that is starting to go away slowly. I, we talk about it in terms, I think, put it in scale. If the world wide web is the dollar, the dark web is the yuan, right? So it's a little bit nefarious, a little bit under the table. People aren't really proud of being on it or don't even really know it's there, but it's being used more and more. And I think that's something that we've got to be thinking about. And it does change how politics work. I think ultimately we're at a point, and we've seen this with Russia, if sanctions have been our biggest tool over the last five years, sanctions are one of the least effective ways to get anything done. People are finding more and more ways around those sanctions. I think we've got to have a rethink it again as we're trying to pull, how do we influence the world? If sanctions really were our biggest tool, that's going away because countries are gravitating more and saying, I will do some business with China and I will do it directly in yuan, which is a bit weird because yuan is actually technically pegged to the dollar. So it's all a little bit circular, um, which is why it's not going to be a true reserve currency, but it's just all these little steps that they're taking to encourage transactions to occur, slowly eat away at us. And again, we're kind of sitting, I think, in this world where we have you know, one to two year time horizons. They have five, 10 year time horizons. And as they chop away at the weakest you know, elements of the world, join them, that's what we're seeing. So I, I think that's how we're supposed to be thinking about all these countries, that we've got to be out there aggressively courting them, figuring out how we can work better with them, knowing that China is kind of you know, offering the carrot uh, and maybe a little bit of the stick, but that's now our competition. And these conversations aren't one-sided anymore. I think we've got to figure out how a nation like Saudi Arabia, can we really deal with them and in an honest and truthful way? Um, I'm actually a little surprised that it took us this far into the conversation to bring up NATO. Um, any thoughts on how the potential for escalation, um, given this weekend's events, could impact NATO's response? Have we heard, did, did NATO put any messaging out there um, after this weekend's, any new posturing given the events? Um, it's a great question, Rachel. Um, NATO clearly uh, perked up their ears on this. I, I'm cautious about, I mentioned earlier in, in one of uh, uh, 
my uh, discussions that they need to be on high alert for the ramifications of just what Putin might do to rally the Russian people. Uh, and I still believe that true. And I think quietly in the background, um, they're doing that. Um, you know, they don't want to be viewed as uh, getting to the point where their actions could be turned around by Putin's uh, propaganda machine as uh, escalatory. Uh, but what Putin, you know, the, the, I think we're a little more stabilized after the weekend that uh, Putin's not going to do anything uh, dramatic, but he, to save his skin, he still might. And, um, you know, desperation overcomes logic and rationality. Uh, so Putin could resort to do anything to keep in power. Uh, and NATO needs to be aware and in a defensive posture uh, uh, to do a couple things. One is to send a visible signal to the Russians that they are prepared uh, to repulse any kind of incursion into a NATO country. That would be the biggest concern. Of, uh, and that would pull NATO into a conflict with Russia. Nobody wants to see that happen. And I think even including Putin, but once again, as I mentioned, you know, de desperate men do desperate things. So uh, it's important for them to be on alert. Um, they are, um, and they have been in response to Russia's assault. It's something that isn't talked about that much uh, but if you talk to the leadership of the NATO member um, nations, I recently attended the 100th anniversary of the Italian Air Force that had over 75 um, uh, Air Force leaders from around the world uh, and uh, many from NATO who were extraordinarily pleased with how NATO has responded in the context of uh, increasing their defensive posture and coordinating to a degree that I think surprised a lot of people. Remember, one of the things that Putin ostensibly conducted this um, uh, aggression against Ukraine to do was to split NATO. And in actuality, if you look at the strategic goals that Putin had, all of them backfired. I mean, Finland is now in NATO. Uh, who would have thought that five years ago, three years ago, two years ago? of Sweden soon to follow once Erdogan gets rid of his whatever. I, I won't comment any further, but um, I think you'll see Sweden up soon after. Switzerland, you know, reneged on 200 years of neutrality to condemn the invasion. So um, a lot of that has to do with the unity of the NATO nations uh, and the integration of the NATO military um, has been laudatory. Well, I, we have only a few minutes left, and um, I want to take one more question from the audience. And while it isn't directly related to um, the crisis in Russia, I think it's a really interesting question that will highlight what our geopolitical intelligence group is particularly um, talented at, which is giving people things to think about that are unconventional or um, away from the traditional narrative when it comes to geopolitical risk, because we're, we're pretty good about looking beyond the horizon. So the question is about um, our thoughts on Chinese ambitions beyond Taiwan. Do you foresee an opportunity um, where the U.S. and China could come into direct conflict that is not related to Taiwan? Uh, Peter, you want to take first crack at that? 
all I will say is that I think China figured out that there was a um, commodity war and it started five years ago. And while we had this great vision of where we wanted to head towards sustainability, we had no real plan on how to get there. China has no vision in terms of sustainability, but had a great plan securing the resources that we might need. And I think Russia figured out that we're in the midst of the commodity war, and we have now figured that out as well. And that is going to lead to, I think, tension and conflict. And when you go back 10 years ago, certainly, even still today, wherever there was oil, there was a U.S. presence, there's a military presence often the case. In 10 years, it's going to be lithium, cobalt, wherever those are is where our national interests are going to be. They have stolen one, two, three, four marches on us in terms of acquiring those resources. You know, they almost got a lot of those resources out of Greenland, which if you think about it is, you know, technically as part of Denmark, and yet China came close to securing resources there. So I do think we're in a real kind of battle for commodities. India is going to be a big part of that as well, where India is growing rapidly, right? Their population's already bigger than um, China or about the same, but the demographics are much, much better. It's roughly equal male and female as opposed to China, which is heavily skewed towards male. It's a younger population. They've been a huge beneficiary of a lot of um, businesses transferring their production facilities to India. Um, and I'll try and answer other questions in there at the same time. With India in particular, I think we view them as an ally. I think India is incredibly independent. India is going to do what they want to do. We also, I think, often make the mistake that we see India maybe as a second or third world power. India views themselves as an emerging superpower, so we get ourselves into trouble in there. But I think this is the shape of the things going forward is the last 20, 30 years were really about petrodollars and ruling that. The next 10, 20, 30 years are going to be about these rarest critical minerals and not just getting them. I believe China, in some cases, processes about 98% of them, and our ability to process these is incredibly low. So I think there's real scope for certainly tension if not military, and a lot of it's going to be driven around this search for commodities, acquisition of commodities, processing commodities, and can you make yourself self-sustainable? Yeah, let me just real quick, because I know we're running out of time. Uh, you know, I was smiling when Peter mentioned India, because that's the first nation that came to mind. But his point's an excellent one. I'd also, I'm going to make a plug for a book that I'm reading. I don't have any association with the author or the publisher. But it goes into a lot of detail on the points Peter just raised and that title of the book is the end of the world is just the beginning mapping the collapse of globalization by Peter Zeehan Z E I H A N. Uh, it goes into a lot of details I want to close because one of the things we haven't talked about is the opportunity for the Ukrainians from both a military and a psychological warfare perspective, particularly if Wagner's combat hardened troops remain out of Ukraine, um, this could tip the fight in Ukraine's favor. But like I said earlier, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty regarding just what's going to happen. But Ukraine should certainly be able to capitalize on these events. Yeah, there's plenty of informational, psychological and uh, messaging warfare to be done. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that develop over the coming uh, days and weeks. Uh, General Datula, General Robison, uh, Peter, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, providing your absolutely unique and invaluable insights to our audience. Thank you so much for joining today. Um, if your question just did not get answered on the webinar, we will follow up um, with some thoughts. And thank you so much for spending some of your time with us today. We hope uh, you enjoyed the conversation. 
Thank you so much, Rachel, and everyone for their contributions to this conversation. Academy Securities is a service-disabled veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have an interest in engaging with our geopolitical intelligence group directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.